Hey everyone, John Wertheim here. It is this week's Sports Illustrated Tennis Podcast. It is also the first week of Wimbledon, he says wistfully. Um, our guest this week is Donald Dell. Donald is a former player, a promoter, a broadcaster, an agent. He has worn many hats, not unlike Bartholomew Cubbins. He has also worn many at once. Uh, Donald is still a force in tennis. He wrote an op-ed recently in the Washington Post about the prospect of combining the men's and women's tours. So we talk about that. We talk about where tennis is right now. And as a bonus, Donald signed Michael Jordan out of North Carolina. And especially after the last dance, we talk about Michael Jordan. So uh, some non-tennis bonus coverage on Michael Jordan and a lot of good tennis talk. Here's Donald Dell. I appreciate you doing this. How, how are you? How are you doing? I'm doing fine. Uh, we've been lucky. I've been home here since about March 15th, but my uh, two daughters, their husbands, and uh, our two grandchildren, five and seven, are about 30 yards from uh, where we are. Man, it's like uh, it's like 120-day Thanksgiving. It doesn't sound bad. Yeah. Let's, um, I, I don't know, I, mean, I got a couple things to bring up, but I, I did want to talk about the, the op-ed you wrote, and I thought you'd be a good person to talk about with the the tour merger, which has been uh, eclipsed lately by uh, COVID and the U.S. Open, but this was sort of a hot topic. And everyone says the same thing, which is great idea, the devil's in the details. So let's, let's advance that. How do we, how do we exercise those, uh, those devilish details? How do, how do we push through so this becomes more than uh, an abstract good idea that we need to negotiate? What do, what do we do to make this happen? Well, I think I think more than that, the devil, the devil is in the, the leadership. In other words, I think it's going to take strong leaders uh, in both part, both groups to get it done. And I think uh, Steve Simon and Mickey Lawler, you know, are really veterans and, and well-respected and well-liked. Uh, Gadenzi, the new uh, chairman of the ATP, I'm told is very smart, very capable. And I just think if, the, if they wanted to really do it, they'd get together. And then it takes a lot of support from, you know, Billie Jean and Roger and, and uh, some of the leaders in the game all got behind it. Then you, it's, it's sort of like all the protests out there today. You know, you got to move, move the, the ship forward. And, it, and it's a big alphabet soup that everybody sort of fights for their turf. I mean, right. uh, the ATP Tour uh, has really established itself, but it's not part of the Grand Slams. It's not part of the ITF. And uh, not that, that they want to be, I, don't misunderstand me, but I just think recently in the last six or eight years, the ATP tour has not worked very effectively uh, in some senses because they've been voting in blocks. The three tournament directors vote together and the three player reps vote together. And then the chairman's left there with the hanging vote. And literally he doesn't want to vote because he always makes one side unhappy. And the last two chairmen, if you reviewed it, John, have been fired uh, because uh, one group didn't like how he voted, and they need a super majority of four to two to extend uh, his contract. So his contracts ran out right. in the last two cases. Now, I'm told by people that I'm very close to and respect that Gauden Gaudenzi is quite a different uh, person. He's a very strong leader, very smart in media, and he really gets it. I just think for the sport, uh, it would be really helpful to have the two groups uh, merge on a, on a simple basis. And the, when you talk about the details, you, you're right. But I think the simplicity is what matters. Keep it simple, stupid, when you want to merge the two to start with. Uh, you don't have to have exactly the same boards, the same voting members, but come in and, and merge it and have, you know, 
five or six basic principles. And, and truthfully, uh, we found out in Washington with the city open that I ran for 50 years, literally for the WTEF, the Washington Tennis Foundation, that we had, we had a men's only event for 42 years. And then city came along as our title sponsor and rightfully said, look, 51% of our clients, bankers, are women. So we're not gonna sponsor it unless you'll bring a women's tournament into it. And we did, but it was a problem because there's a bigger women's event at Stanford for 700,000. We were only allowed by the rules for 250. But guess what? The ATP, the minority of the ATP, 10%, fought it tooth and nail. They didn't want an integrated tournament. And I had to go before the board, you know, three different times and swear up and down that we give them favorability on the scheduling of the center court, uh, scheduling of transportation, scheduling of practice courts. And it just didn't work. It's working okay. And the women, the best women like to play Washington. But now under the new WTA rules, we can only sign one of the top 20 in the world in order to protect the other event that's raising more prize money by 700 or more so those kind of problems have to be worked out and the atp tour really needs to get uh, stronger with this membership uh the, the the vocal minority which is really only about 10 or 12 percent and it's always the complainers on the tour the the tour board knows who they are and they're always ranked between 150 and 300 but they're the ones that are putting tremendous pressure on the player council not to have more integrated events which of course, I, I think we found the women were a tremendous asset to the tournament. I was surprised by that, honestly. Uh, and we got tons of phone calls about what time uh, uh, Sloan was gonna play. And, you know, what time the gal from C Canada who was so attractive and, and such a good player. Everybody was asking the same questions. So the women really integrated well into Washington, even though they were in a, in a second class position because we had to sign agreements with ATP in March before the tournament about right. the center court scheduling and about transportation. I mean, literally we had to sign a memorandum that we wouldn't do certain things to make it totally equal. Right. And nobody wants to hear that. Everybody's going to yell and scream, but that's what happened. The, uh, I mean, you know, the, the irony is as we speak now, it's unclear if women will be at, uh, at the DC event in 2020 for very similar reasons. But I mean, just sort of big, big picture, do you think in 2020, this equal distribution of board seats between players and tournaments reflects a balance of power in tennis? I mean, is, do you think tournaments and players should have equal representation in terms of board seats? Well, well, I, I'm, you know, I, I helped start the ATP in 1972 with Jack Kramer, and it was a players-only union. And we had the Wimbledon boycott in 73, which none of the players today even know about or remember. We had 68 players withdraw from Wimbledon after they made the draw, made the seedings, and they wouldn't let Nicky Pillage play because he refused to play Davis Cup. And the ITF said, no, you can't play Wimbledon. Wimbledon mistakenly accepted that. And 68 players led by Cliff Drysdale, Arthur Ashe, Stan Smith, John Newcomb, Rod Laver, Ken Rosewell, all the best players in the world pulled out of the 1973 right. Wimbledon Championships. But what did that do? It unified a players' union because they had skin in the game. They had given up a lot to pull out. Stan Smith is the only defending champion in the history of Wimbledon 
who could have played the next year and didn't play. You go back. Only wars have interrupted that thing, but Stan chose not to play. And so we had a very strong union in the 70s and 80s. Suddenly, there was a whole other political battle, and the MIPTC Council was canceled in 1989 when we won the Volvo lawsuit about them. And Hamilton Jordan was the new head of the ATP, and he suddenly decided, because he lived in Ponte Vedra, he's very close to the PGA people and the tour, and he said, let's have a tour where we have players and tournaments, 50-50 equal representation, and we run a new thing called the ATP Tour, and we'll run all the tournaments. Some parts of the tour have been extraordinarily successful for the players. But your question, John, I would have much preferred a tournament directors association and a players association, labor and management. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, you know, and then meet every five years and negotiate a collective bargain agreement so that you can run the sport accordingly. But at the end of the day, a better question is, how do we make America, a tennis in America, more, much more popular? I mean, what drives me nuts, and this is why I think a merger of the two associations now that they're structured, or you restructure the ATP into players only and tournaments only, which I think is probably too big a, a, a problem. But it's a partnership now that sometimes doesn't work. Why? Because the tournament directors sitting there all have stake uh, conflicts of interest with their own tournaments that they represent and they want players. But basically the players want, you know, uh, fewer tournaments for the top players and bigger money. And the tournaments want more tournaments and less prize money for the so there's a conflict structurally in a lot of ways i'm hopeful and positive that galdenzi may overcome that but to answer your original question if we had two separate player only and tournament director only representation i think that's a better more equal effective way of getting the game bigger john because in europe as you know soccer's one some countries basketball's two but tennis is in the top two or three in every country in Europe. Well, and it's number, you know, 11 or 12 in America yeah, on that's, television. That's not, uh, you, you can see that reflected in, in the rankings. Exactly. Uh, let, me, let me ask you this. You were a, a longtime agent as well. Um, a player comes to you and he says, you know, Donald, you got to help me here. I'm, I'm the world's number one player, but my ego got a hold of me. I put on this exhibition during COVID. I wasn't particularly cautious. People got sick, including me. I'm getting hammered worldwide here. Help, help me get my good name back. What, what would you tell this hypothetical player? Well, the hypothetical player is pretty obvious, John, but I would tell him you can first and foremost, you know, make a really public apology uh, for your stupidity, the way you dealt with the problem, and then turn very hard to changing your mind and, and trying, you know, before all this happened, the hypothetical number one player, you know, said, I don't believe in vaccinations. I don't want to come to the U.S. Open because I can't bring but one person in my entourage is five. Uh, and I, I would just, it would be very easy for him to turn that around if he came out publicly and frequently to really support what the sport is trying to do in light of the uh, virus. I mean, we have a terrible situation and the players are Certainly the, the lesser players, and I by that I mean, say, from 30 to 120, they can't afford what's happening. The top 15 certainly can. But, the, you know, the next 75 are really hurting financially. And I think this hypothetical number one player 
should speak out very strongly and very frequently on how to make it work under the circumstances. For example, support the U.S. Open, support the French Open if they're held, with or without uh, spectators, because then at least you have jobs and players and television, and the television ratings with uh, no spectators are going to be uh, substantial. They'll be enormous, in my opinion. Right. Um, let me ask you a non-tennis question. You, you and I, uh, you and I have been speaking over, over the past few years for this 1984, but for this book and Michael Jordan that I've been working on, and I was curious what. I don't. Did did you watch the Last Dance? Did you watch the? Documentary? I did. I watched all of it. What What was that like for you? Well, some of it was really exciting. I, I thought that Michael did a very very good job. Yeah. Right. That right. you know the, the 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 NBA had films that were magnificent, and uh, the only thing personally that I didn't like much about it was that I personally signed Michael in 1984. Dean Smith called me on a Saturday morning with Michael and his wife, his mother rather, Dolores, on the phone. And I and asked me if I wanted to represent uh, Michael. And I said, sure, he's a junior. And then Michael was on the phone. I said, Michael, how do you feel about it? And he said, well, I, I'm a junior. I really want to come back for one more year, but coach says I should come out now. And you know, my mom and I were thinking about, what do you think? And I said, well, let me, let me test the market and find out what teams would pay and where you might go in the draft. Because, John, you got to remember, in 84, uh, there was no rules. I mean, you couldn't sign or even say you had an agent or you were going to be ineligible. So Coach Smith always used me to talk to, talk to general managers, and we en envisioned that Michael was going to go two or three. I thought he might go after Elijah Wan, but they, in Portland, drafted Sam Bowie. And so, you know, I managed Michael in Washington with ProServe for uh, nine or ten years till 1992. Uh, personally, and uh, he was phenomenal I, as a marketing agent. The first thing we did was put him in a tuxedo holding a basketball, and we tried to cross over uh, all color lines in order to market him, and he was tremendously successful. But so as I watched The Last Dance, you know, I had mixed emotions uh, about some of it, but I thought that uh, the NBA and ESPN did a wonderful job by using the right uh, films. I mean, when, when you see Michael playing uh, the Boston Celtics in a playoff game where they have four Hall of Famers in their front line. Right. Michael scores 63 points. And after the game, Larry Bird says, you know, we can't stop him. All we got to do is score ahead of him because he's the best players ever played. That's pretty persuasive. And I think it was a wonderful thing for Michael getting his name remembered because people forget very quickly and, you know, people like players like LeBron James comes along. He's a great player and everybody, you know, it's like, it's like the Rod Laver, uh, Roger Federer, who's the best player. Well, they're better in their eras, not, not necessarily head to head, but what they did when they played in those eras, in my judgment. What, um, I got one more Jordan, which is everyone talks about how he was so charismatic and, and funny and giving of his time. And one of the reasons he was so popular early is just he, he was so accessible and you had this, this wonderful smile, but also this wonderfully engaging, magnetic personality. What do you think happened that turned him into um, a bit of a cipher? I mean, he, this was one of the, I think one reason this was so popular is because nobody really knows much about Michael Jordan. He doesn't do interviews. He doesn't do shows. He's not Charles Barkley. His ownership hasn't been particularly successful. 
what, what do you think happened? Was, was there one moment or what do you think the forces were that took this, this charismatic, accessible guy and, and made him so introverted? Well, first of all, a couple things. N- number one, uh, he is very charismatic and he does have a great smile. That, that's a given. When you walk into a room and you meet people and he handles himself very well, he never had drug problems, he never had drinking problems, he never had any problems except he loved to gamble about anything. But he was very charismatic. On the other side of the coin is Michael was driven. Uh, I mean, he is the most um, vision-oriented person to accomplish goals that, that I've met in sports. I mean, you know, he's playing a team sport. And in tennis and golf, you meet people who are, you know, a guy like Roger Federer or Djokovic. I mean, they're, you know, they're driven. They give up a lot of things around them because it's an individual sport. Basketball is a five-man team sport. But Michael was driven uh, and, and put everything aside to be the best he could. I don't know what drove him to do that, but he turned down everything to, to be the best. And the second thing that made him, I think, more introverted was you have no idea how much uh, he loved his father. And when his father was killed, uh, murdered in his own car in North Carolina, uh, that really stunned Michael. And I think it hurt him in a lot of ways. And it probably made him a lot more untrustworthy uh, of people around him. I mean, you know, I, I recruited a lot of players over 40 years. I loved basketball. And we were very strong in, in uh, basketball and tennis at ProServe. And I remember Michael, the first day I ever met him, he came to my home in Washington, spent the two nights with us, and his father, James Jordan, came with him. So I had an unusual opportunity to get to know uh, James a little bit. No, no recruit had ever done that. Phil Ford came up. Uh, James Worthy came up. They all came and met us, but nobody brought their father. And so he was really... I think, uh, in, I don't know this, this is my opinion from afar, that he just really became more introverted in trying to drive himself to be as good as he could. And he, he knew after three or four years that he had a chance to be the greatest because everyone's telling him that, and his results were so outstanding. I mean, to think that he won the championship three years in a row in the NBA, two years off to play baseball, which was a lark, comes back and wins it three more years. I mean, how many people can do that? Yeah, exactly. And I, I think, um, I mean, I think it's an interesting sort of parallels to tennis where sometimes it's obvious where a player's drive comes from and there was a childhood or there was deprivation or there was, you know, sometimes a loss of a sibling. Um, I, I think people, I think the film did a pretty good job of this too, but this, this is a pretty middle-class kid with, you know, two. No, but t- trust me. Siblings him, and the happily married parents. John, trust me, his drive came a lot from his father, James, and his mother, Dolores, who was a big, big factor in his life. And his, his siblings, Larry was a guy he used to compete against in high school. They used to go out and battle. And I mean, ESPN captured some of that. But that was accurate. I mean, Dolores and James Jordan were really, not only did they create Michael, but they really molded Michael in their own way. And love of his family was a tremendous point in his upbringing. No doubt in my mind. And he also loved Coach Smith. I mean, the father figure was a big deal in, in Michael's life as a youngster. Right. Um, all right, back, back to tennis. We, uh, 
you know, I, I think when you're when you're on the inside and no one is more inside than you are, you, you hear a lot of complaints and the fan age is going up and it's, you know, it's been almost 20 years since an American man has won a major. And yet I see that the two highest grossing male and female athletes in the world are, are tennis players. And, you know, the, the U.S. Open can pay full prize money without selling a single ticket. And, you know, as a woman's sport, uh, tennis is head and shoulders above anything else. I mean, I, I think there's some positives. I mean, we're big picture. Where do you see the sport in 2020? Well, I don't see it going very anywhere in 2020. You got to build to 2021. Uh, I, I, if this uh, rebound comes of the virus in uh, August or September, I mean, it could, it could set everything back, not forward. I mean, I think, you know, when, when I heard the Masters in golf was going November 10th to 14th, I thought, God almighty, that's uh, awful long. It's going to be cold. Well, in Georgia, I guess you can do it. That may have been the smartest play of all because maybe some of this will be in the winter will die down by November. But I, I would look, John, towards 2021 and, and what the sport – look, no major sport is a great international sport without a, a big, strong American audience. The women in America have done great. This, the Williams sisters have been phenomenal and have done a great job for women's tennis for – 10, 12 years, they've carried the sport. Right. But you know, right. on the men's side, you know, we have four players in the top 100 ranked on the ATP Tour. I mean, that's absurd. Uh, John Isner, who's a wonderful guy, is 34 years old. He's ranked 24. He's the highest ranked American. And he does very well financially in the game because he's the number one ranked American. But then the question is, how do you make American tennis more important to the young athletes coming out of the ghetto, coming out of the cities, coming out of the farmlands, you're great natural athletes. There's a battle on when they're 8, 10, 12 years old. And do you choose an individual sport like tennis, where the riches are enormous? The women have all done that because they don't have any alternatives. But the men have basketball, football, hockey, and baseball. And so tennis has got to get smart in America and really compete for the eight and 10 year old growing up. And how do you do that? Well, one thing, that, this is said, you know, from afar, I'm not in the USTA, I've been very close to them over the years, been a Davis Cup captain and all that, been on their committees, but you know, they have 17 sections. They make $350 million net, net, net out of the US Open. And they spend 80, 85% of it on the 17 sections. Well, they've got to make sure those sections are doing something to really get young players into the game, run young athletes, not just parents who play. You know, the Bryans grew up because their mother and father played. Right. I grew up and played a lot because my mother played. But how do you attract the young, uneducated, great athlete to tennis? And that's the $64 question that the USTA, in my judgment, has got to deal with an answer and has not done that for 30 years. I mean, seriously, John, if you think about it today in the world, who is promoting tennis? In my judgment, there's one group that promotes tennis, uh, certainly in America, effectively. That's called the Tennis Channel. If we didn't have the Tennis Channel, what would tennis look like on the media scale? Absurd. You're uh, you're singing my song. What if what if I chat? What if I attack this entire premise and said we we live in a global world, 
the economics are never going to work out. I mean, there, there are guys in the NBA that you and I have never heard of that will make more money than, you know, Roger Federer and Rafa Nadal in prize money anyway. The economic incentive is not going to be there. Why don't we just embrace this as an international sport? Why don't we support Dominic Team and get to know Sitsipas and stop with this idea that American fans will only root for American players because it just is not trending that way. And it's great that you've got the Williams sisters and, and Coco Goff and a much different picture on the women's side. But the USTA, instead of trying to generate these champions and, and the track record there in the last 20 years is nothing to uh, be proud of, why don't we just put all of this muscle behind getting Americans to appreciate tennis, period? And if the guy's from Serbia or the guy is from Greece or the guy is from Russia or Germany, so be it. That's what tennis looks like. Let's stop with this nationalism that's also at, at odds with this global world we live in. What do, you, uh, what do you say to that strategy? Well, I say to that, that's exactly what the Tennis Channel is doing every day. We just need to broaden it to other cable networks and other sports networks. I think well, it's a very... The, uh, yeah, I mean, the Tennis Channel... I think it's hard to do, though, John. I think it's very, what you're proposing is very difficult to do because people naturally think, oh, well, we need American players in an individual American sport to be popular. And, I, and the NBA has proven differently, even in a team sport. You know, there's over 104... Uh, non-American NBA players today. Nobody realizes that. David Stern was a genius in doing that. They have the best players in the world playing the, the best sport, yeah. and it's the number one or two sport in the world after soccer, soccer but the, football. But, the, uh, you know, but I would say the critical difference there is that the games are played here, and we love you know, Jokic and Dirk Nowitzki and, and the Greek freak, but he's playing in Dallas and Milwaukee, and it's not that, you know, if, if these international players were taking the events with them, which is what we see in tennis, and suddenly half the NBA season was going on in Western Europe, what would happen to fandom? I mean, to, to me, the big loss in the U.S. is not the lack of American players, it's the lack of American events. And if the NBA could be 100% foreign players, but if they're still playing in Salt Lake City, it's going to be more popular than a, a sport that's played offshore, at least in the U.S., what do you, what do you think well, you're, a, you're absolutely right. If you look back to in the 70s and 80s, I mean, we had uh, at one stage, we had 26 American tournaments on the tour. Uh, and today we have about seven. Uh, I mean, that, your, your point is very well taken. If you're going to have a popular sport, you got to have a lot of events in the nation, in the country where you're promoting the sport. And we have failed miserably on the prize money basis and the competitiveness basis. And you're right, we've always placed uh, the emphasis on, well, we need more American stars, as opposed to we need bigger events and bigger prize money. And that's one place, I think very effectively, that the integration of the men and women on a tour could benefit America. Because America, uh, the, the, the parity, the gender parity, is a big wave in America, as you know, and it's certainly happening and has happened much more than many other countries. So I, I think the USTA should be thinking about creating more events, but they're not. The people who create events are either, uh, uh, you know, agencies like uh, IMG, ProServe, or Octagon. That's where we were effective. Uh, we were creating events. And so uh, that's, that's one good way to build the sport again but uh, it takes real leadership at the top 
of the USTA. The biggest problem they've had for years is a new president every two years. There's no leadership there. They're just uh, caretakers, really. They mean well, and, they, and they're nice people. But they're here today and gone tomorrow in two years. You've really got to build. I mean, that's one of the hopes of, I think, emerged ATP and WTA. If you had strong leadership at the top, which today you do, let's bring them together and create some co-ed uh, events, as many as we could get in America. That's one way to go. Let me ask you one more question, which uh, I, I don't mean this as, as cocktail party talk. I, I'm, I'm dead serious on this. Where, where do you get your energy? I mean, I, I see you all over the world. Uh, you, you could very, very easily and gracefully be playing tennis and uh, living the good life. And I see you grinding it out on shuttle buses uh, as someone who still cares about the sport. I, I don't mean this as, uh, as blowing smoke and I don't mean this as a throwaway line and in all seriousness. Where do you, well, think, it's, where does this fight well, it's a sport, John, It's a sport, John, that, that I really have always loved, not just as a player. When I started uh, my, own, my own law firm, Del Craig, Ophentris, and Benton in 1970, I was the first tennis agent in the world. And uh, uh, what I really wanted to do, I had played the tour for six or seven years, played Wimbledon seven times, played the U.S. Open about 12 times. And I just wanted to see the sport of tennis become like golf or other sports. In other words, when I played, everyone would say, and I retired in 66, the game went open in 68. So people said to me, well, what do you do besides play tennis? Because I was an amateur. What do you do besides play tennis? That's what every guy was, was asked. Jack Kramer came out and said, I was a paid amateur. He got paid a lot of expenses. Right. I want to change that. My goal in 1970 was, I want to see my younger brother, 10 years younger, played the tour dick, say I'm a professional tennis player that's what drove me in the 70s and 80s when everything was starting up was really to create a pro tour that's happened now uh energy wise I guess I, I'm very very lucky uh my genes are great my mother lived to be 103 John so hopefully uh, I still have a lot of energy I try to take care of myself and I've got a wonderful wife and two twin daughters and 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 they give me a lot of love and support. And it's just, uh, I, I, enjoy, I love the sport. I love all sport, actually, but I love tennis, too. And I just, you know, Jack Kramer was my hero. Uh, I think he did more for the sport than anybody. And if I can be helpful and create something better for those who follow, that, that really uh, motivates me and drives me. Uh, and as long as I have good health and work with good people, uh, you know, I like the very much, as you know, the Ken Solomons of the world and the Jack Kramers of the world, the people that really matter in growing the sport, uh, that's what uh, motivates me. Right. Uh, well, we're, uh, we're lucky to have you. This is a great, good, good, good place to wrap. I, I really uh, I appreciate this. This was fun, fun conversation. Thanks, John. It's been, it's been very enjoyable. Always a pleasure. All right. Take care of yourself. Enjoy your family. And uh, maybe we'll see you in person one of these days. For sure. And stay well. Yourself. You well. Thanks, Donald. Okay, thanks to Donald Dell. Fun conversation. Donald remains a real pillar in the sport. Uh, he's sort of the Fabrice Santoro uh, in terms of being a master of tennis angles. And uh, we will see whether these merged tours will happen. Again, I think we all say the same thing. Great idea. Let's attack those devils in the details. Thanks, as always, this week to Jamie. Have a good holiday week, everyone. If you're in the U.S., have a good week. If you are not in the U.S., uh, keep 
the guest suggestions coming. We got a great guest suggestion uh, the other day that we are trying to make happen. Thanks to Dale S. for that one. So have a good week, everyone. Um, join me in mourning uh, that this would be Wimbledon week. Hopefully we'll be back uh, with the next major on the calendar, the U.S. Open. Uh, meanwhile, stay healthy, stay well, subscribe, leave a review, follow us, um, get this wherever podcasts are bought and sold. And have a good week, everyone. All right, take care. Thank mm-hmm. you.